So session two this week in our series, Becoming an Emotionally Healthy Christian, is focused on these 10 things, 10 symptoms of emotionally unhealthy spirituality. And then we're going to dig into the life of Saul and an episode in his life where he could choose to either spiral up or spiral down. And he will be a wonderful example for us of how not to be. So we discussed last week the areas of emotional weakness that we're all inclined to fall into according to our personality types. We also noted the importance of being self-aware. I can't say that enough. Becoming self-aware, pausing to reflect on our words, on our thoughts, on our emotions, on our actions on a daily basis, if not a moment-by-moment -moment basis. Pausing and reflecting, analyzing what we're about to say, what we just said, and then doing the next right thing. Well, it's what happens to most of us is we get upset that begins us on this path day after day, week after week, month after month, or year after year, where we continue in the same bad emotional habits, and then we wonder why our life is not getting better. And what we tend to do is to blame it on the other people. We blame it on circumstance, don't we? Okay, y'all can nod your head. This is your cue. It is what we do. If they would not do this, I would not be who I am. And if they would get their act together, then I would know how to respond and life would be really good. And so that's the excuse we begin to give ourselves. Well, what we're not doing is recognizing our own emotional habits and patterns and getting a handle on those. So today we're going to look at how our emotional life impacts our spiritual life. So I gave you the assessment last week called the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship Personal Assessment. And it begins with this question, how emotionally healthy are you? Did anybody read that and think, uh-uh, not doing that? <laughs> that is not for me. Everybody knows who I am, what I am about. I don't need to fill that out. And besides, I don't even want to know more. I mean, I know that some do that. I see some people pointing fingers at, at each other. Uh, so, uh, but it's really important to reflect and to kind of see where we are with our emotions. So what this assessment does, it covers seven categories that reveal our emotional health spiritually. So I'm going to highlight these seven questions. Number one is, are you spending quality, quiet time before God? Number two, now this will be on that assessment if you brought it back. I know the melancholies have their folder. Don't you just show it to the class? You have your folder. It is in there. It's ready to go. And a choleric found somebody who would do it. Phlegmatics may have left it at home, forgot it. It never made it past the car. I know. We know the types. And, and saying what you just talked about it a lot. And those are those in the weaknesses. Anyway, I've given you time now to pull out that handout, and you can see these questions. Number one, are you spending quality quiet time before God? Number two, how does... Number three, how in tune are you with how God created you, and are you living in the strengths of your God-created self? Number four, how do you deal with grief and loss? Number five, to what extent do you show love and compassion for others? 
Number six, how in tune are you with your past and the past of your family and the impact that has on you? I find that generational issues are showing up really strong in our emotional lives, and that means it's affecting us spiritually. Number seven, how do you deal with your weaknesses? So the results of that assessment show your emotional health as a Christian, a spiritual being. So it classes us as either an emotional infant, emotional child, emotional adolescent, or an emotional adult. And you don't show your hands, I reiterate that. The last thing we need is somebody to go out and say, she called me a crybaby and I am never going back to that class again. Okay, so whatever the results show, we can all make progress. See, that's the hope we have in Christ. We can all move forward. We get stuck, and we can move forward, and we can become increasingly more mature. So we want to assess ourselves from time to time to see where we are in our lives, to learn from what's happening to us and what, how we've reacted and how we've responded, and then to grow forward from that. So last week, we acknowledged our strengths and our weaknesses in our personalities, and we looked at the pitfalls that we all have. Now, today, we're going to focus on the thoughts and behaviors that indicate symptoms of emotionally unhealthy spirituality. These are all connected to the assessment that you took. So what you're going to hear, you'll be able to connect. I'll remember that question. That is what that's dealing with here. Then as we move forward in this series, I'll be addressing each of these in different ways in different weeks. So we're uh, using this assessment came that uh, Peter Scazzaro, who is a pastor in Brooklyn, New York. He has been doing this for 20 years. He has written books about this. I've been reading his books. I've been looking at his podcast. And he is a wonderful author and speaker and has done this research for years. So he's the one that has come up <clears throat> with this research of the 10 symptoms of emotionally unhealthy spirituality. Number one, using God to run from God. So here's how that looks. You might say, or this might be what you do, create a great deal of God activity in order to avoid really difficult areas in your life you want to change. And so you'll know you're in trouble if you do this. Pray about God doing my will, not about me surrendering to his will, whatever it is. You might demonstrate Christian behaviors so significant people think well of you. And you might use biblical truths to judge and devalue others. So here's a question to consider on that one. Am I doing God activity, but am I keeping behaviors that are not reflective of a spiritually mature follower? So on that one, we're looking at what we're doing and who we really are. Number two, ignoring anger, sadness, and fear. Many Christians were probably taught that almost all feelings are unreliable and not to be trusted. And so while it's true that, that some Christians follow their feelings in a really unhealthy and unbiblical way, 
it's more common to have find Christians who don't believe they have permission to show any feelings or express themselves very openly. So they've been suppressing feelings. So we get to that, uh, that far-reaching example of some people showing their feelings in a very overt way and very loud way, and others covertly and suppressing it and having suppressed anger and just not dealing with it appropriately either way, and that's where we want to look for the middle. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at that. Next week, the therapist will help us to look at some ways to get better about that. Now, this applies to very difficult feelings also like fear and sadness and shame and anger and hurt and pain. And so we want to ask, how can I listen to what God is saying and also at the same time evaluate what is going on inside me so I don't cut out my emotional life? Uh, So uh, next week, we'll be looking at emotional life and how we need to have healthy emotions. One question as a checkup question you might ask is, to what degree am I honest with myself and or other people about the feelings, hurts, and pains beneath the surface of my life? Am I able, ready, willing to share what the pains are that I am feeling and the fears? Because that means we're becoming vulnerable. That's an important aspect in emotional health. Number three, dying to the wrong things. Well, we want to die to the sinful parts of who we are. And so we look at some of our traits as emotionally unhealthy in our personality, and we begin to ask ourselves, have I become too defensive? Am I detaching from other people? Do people think I'm arrogant? Am I stubborn? Is there some hypocrisy going on? Have I become judgmental? Am I not being vulnerable? But God did not ask us to die to the healthy, wonderful pleasures of life. And so we want to make sure we are enjoying the wonderful things that we experience in life. Full enjoyment of them. Because see, that's the other part of of what we express emotionally. Can we express joy? Can we enjoy art and music and beauty and laughter and nature and friendships? So God gives us desires. And we should have desires that enjoy the wonderful aspects of God's creation and of our created being. Those things nurture our souls. And at the same time, we need to die to those things that are removing us from other people and from God. So here's a question to consider. Am I focusing more on enjoying the good and ignoring dying to those emotional issues that keep me stuck in childhood? Number four, denying the impact of the past on the present. Well, the work of a growing Christian is to, it demands that we keep going back in order to break free of unhealthy and destructive patterns because those prevent us from loving ourselves, loving others, and loving the way that God designed ourselves. So very often, one of the questions we ask ourselves is, why am I, and then you fill in the blank, so defensive. Where have I seen this? Is there a pattern in our family? Have we become a 
offensive family? Are we an angry family? Is that what happened with, with grandma and grandpa and uh, your, your parents? Is, is there a pattern of that? Because not until we really acknowledge and recognize that, we're not going to be able to break free from it because we're chained to the past. Now, we'll be looking at that in session five about how our past informs our present. But a question consider to consider, do you consider how your family of origin and significant people and events from your past shape your present? Number five, dividing life into secular and sacred compartments. We tend to live compartmentalized lives. There are some interesting Gallup polls and polls done by sociologists. And what they have discovered in the research is that one of, this is one of the greatest scandals, I think, in our day, is that evangelical Christians are as likely to embrace lifestyles every bit as worldly, materialistic, self-centered, and sexually immoral as the world in general. Now that's a scandal, isn't it? We as followers of Christ are to be set apart. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. We live a holistic life in Christ. We're not to think of life as sacred compartments and secular compartments. When I have, we have the lesson that's coming up in a few weeks uh, about our, our spirituality and, and growing through some, some breakthrough moments in our spiritual life, I'm going to be sharing with you about faith development. I did my doctoral dis dissertation on this topic, and that's the different stages and levels of, of faith development and how we begin in a certain way and we try to grow through and then we go back and we go forward. And, and so I'll be sharing with you about that, living that holistic life so that we don't compartmentalize our lives. I'm really excited about that lesson also. So here's a, a question to consider. Do you easily compartmentalize God to Christian activities while not considering him when shopping, working, and socializing? Number six, doing for God instead of being with God. Work for God that is not nourished by this deeper interior life with God will eventually be contaminated. And so it gets contaminated by our ego, our, our struggle for power, our need for approval from others, buying into the wrong ideas of success, and this mistaken belief that we can't fail. So we become then human doings instead of human beings. Our activity for God can only properly flow from life with God. We'll be looking at how to dig deeper into our spiritual life and to take it from that surface level to a deep contemplative life with God that we flow in, in the ebb and flow of life all day long with a contemplative aspect. Our activity now can't, for God can only flow from a life with God. So consider, do you tend to evaluate your spiritual life 
on how much you're doing for God. Number seven, spiritualizing away conflict. Perhaps one of the most destructive myths in our Christian community is this belief that we can just smooth over disagreements. We can just sweep them under the rug. Because, oh, we do not want to ruffle anybody's feathers. We do not want to call attention to anything that is out of sorts or untoward. Not me. I'm a Christian. And we bought into that. Well, Jesus shows us that healthy Christians do not avoid conflict. I hope right now you're thinking back to your personality assessment. There are some personalities that have never met a conflict they did not like, uh, cholerics. And then there are those that run far, far, far away from them. And who would that be? That would be the phlegmatics. And then there are those melancholies that just go into the cave of despair with conflict. And they never really surface to deal with it. And those sanguines will just apologize for whatever they did not do just to keep a friend. Okay, does that sound familiar to anybody? Well, Jesus, Jesus' life was filled with conflict. He was in regular conflict with people, the religious leaders, the crowds, even his disciples, and get this, his own family, out of a desire to bring true peace, Jesus disrupted the false peace all around him. I'm going to say that again. Out of a desire to bring true peace, Jesus disrupted false peace. Is anybody living in false peace in your relationships? With your husband, with your daughter, with your son, with a parent, with a friend? We're just pretending it's all cool, but it's not. And Jesus disrupted it in a very effective and appropriate way. So here's a question. Do you smooth over disagreements, bury tensions, and avoid conflict rather than, here's the key word, appropriately disrupting this false sense of peace as Jesus did? See, Jesus refused to make conflict avoidance a spiritual strength. That's good, isn't it? Jesus refused to make conflict avoidance a spiritual strength. Number eight, covering over brokenness, weakness, and failure. The pressure to present this image of ourselves as strong and, and spiritually together hovers over most of us, doesn't it? As we leave out each day, we, we, we have this desire to present ourselves to the world as a spiritually strong Christian woman. I think that's why you all are here. I think that it is your goal is to be spiritually strong. It's what we want as followers of Christ. But what often happens to us is we begin to feel guilty then if we don't measure up. We feel guilty if we don't make the grade. Or if we leave here and we've heard a sister talk about how their life is and how it looks and how they've, they've uh, done this and that to get together and they're on this road to spiritual maturity and they have achieved spiritual adulthood. And then we leave and we're just a wreck. And we just think, why can't I be that? What's wrong with me? That's why we do not identify on this assessment where we are on this spiritual journey out loud. We just don't do that. 
And so, but because we begin to compare ourselves, we start feeling less than. We forget that not one of us is perfect, and they were all sinners, and we see each other on a given time, Wednesday morning at 10 a.m. We see what happens at 4 o'clock, do we? Okay, anybody? Yes, that's happened, hasn't it? We are, we're different people sometimes throughout the day. <clears throat> you know, the Bible does not spin the flaws and weaknesses of its heroes. Moses, by the way, was a murderer. Hosea's wife was a prostitute. Peter rebuked the Lord God. Noah got drunk. Jonah was a racist. Jacob was a liar. John Mark deserted Paul on their missionary journey. Elijah burned out. Jeremiah was depressed and suicidal. Thomas doubted. Moses had a temper. And Timothy had ulcers. The Bible's real, isn't it? All of these people send the same message that every one of us, regardless of our gifts and our strengths, everyone is weak and vulnerable and dependent on God and others. We are to live in community. That's one thing. It's one beautiful aspect of our group, isn't it? We live in community with each other. We support each other. We love each other. We help each other through our hard times. And we lift each other up. And then we rejoice with each other in our good times. That's what we're supposed to do. Here's a question to consider. Do you have a hard time admitting your weaknesses, failures, and mistakes? Number nine, living without limits. I think that we all should agree that good Christians need to tend to others and, and, and be concerned about the welfare of others. But do we also think we should never say no to help others? Because that would just be selfish. The core spiritual issue here relates to our limits, our humanity, because we're not God, and we can't serve everybody in need. And so this one goes to living a life with appropriate limits so that we take care of ourselves. Why are so many Christians frantic, exhausted, overloaded, and hurried? We need to practice good stewardship of ourselves by knowing our limits. Knowing when enough is enough. So here's a question. Do you try to do it all and bite off more than you can chew? And number 10, judging other people's spiritual journey. This has always been one of the dangers of Christianity. Sadly, we often turn our differences into moral superiority and judging others. By failing to let others be themselves before God, and listen to this, move at their own pace, we begin to project our own discomfort with their choice to live life differently from the way we do. Don't we often get frustrated with people because they're just not coming along like you are. You just want to bring everybody along and run with me, run with me this race of our spiritual journey. And they're saying, you know what, I'll have to slow the pace down because I have some hard work to do. I have some questions. 
And so wherever we are on our spiritual journey is where we are. And the key is to do this one thing. Move forward. Move forward wherever we are. And so we need to expect that from others and respect that from others. Like Jesus said, unless I take that log out of my own eye, then I am dangerous. So here's a question. Do you find yourself occupied and bothered, y'all get this one, by the faults of others? There are personalities that get hung up with that. So I hope, again, you're going back to your assessments and saying, oh, yeah, judgmentalism and criticism and being a critic, having a critical spirit, those are issues. And that falls into this on the spiritual journey as well. So those are the 10 key indicators of emotional, unhealthy spirituality. So we'll be digging into those as the, in the weeks to come, but that's sort of a highlight of each of those. And when I get to the other lessons, we'll be looking at a biblical figure who had to sort through those things as well. Today, we are going to look at the life of Saul, who reflects nearly all of those signs of an emotional and spiritual unhealthy follower of God. So let's look at King Saul. Well, in the story that we have today, we are meeting King Saul, uh, who's the king of Israel, and we're meeting Samuel, who is God's prophet, and I'm calling him a life coach for Saul, who brings God's words to Saul. King Saul now has been instructed, we're going to read verse 3 in a minute, to do this, to attack the Amalekites and destroy, totally destroy all that belongs to them. That is his unequivocal command. Now, remember, the Amalekites were a wicked, sinful people. They were known for their destructiveness. They were pagan. They were attacking the followers of God, and God had to set it straight in Israel. He could not have the Amalekites destroying his plan to build this nation of Israel a people for God. God had had enough. This was the moment in time he had predestined for it to come to an end, and he was going to use Saul to take care of that. But Saul does what Saul does, and he gives into his personal wishes. And he listens to his men who are fighting instead of following what God had told him to do. So he is going to be an example for us of someone who does what he wants to do, even though God tells him to fully do something else. See, Saul knew what was right. God showed him how to live. And he had been guided by Samuel. Yet, he continued in a pattern of wrong living, making selfish choices. Saul is an infant in his emotional and spiritual life. Well, let's look at this example. We're reading 1 Samuel 15. I'm looking at verse 3, and then we'll go to verses 17 to 24. I'm using the modern English version. God told Saul, now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not have compassion on them, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. <clears throat> Very clear instructions. 
Then Saul struck the Amalekites from Havilah until you come to Shur, which is near Egypt. He took Agog, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword, but... Saul and the people spared Agog and the best of the sheep, oxen, fatlings, and lambs. And all that was good, they were not willing to utterly destroy them. But everything that was despised and wicked, that they completely destroyed. Then came the word of the Lord to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have set up Saul to be king because he has turned back from following me and he has not carried out my words. And it grieved Samuel. He cried to the Lord all night. When Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel and set himself up a monument. Then he turned and has passed on down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the word of the Lord. Samuel said, Then what is the sound of this flock and sheep in my ears, and the sound of the cattle which I am hearing? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen, to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, and I will tell you what the Lord spoke to me this night. And Saul said to him, Speak. Samuel said, When you were little in your own sight, were you not made of head? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a journey and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are destroyed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? And why did you rush upon the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. And I have followed in the way which the Lord sent me and have brought Agog the king of Amalek and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took from the plunder sheep and oxen the first fruits of the banned things to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Samuel said, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Obedience is better than sacrifice, a listening ear than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. So I wanted you to hear this story in its entirety so that you could completely hear what God said, what Saul did, how Samuel responded, and then what Saul's response to that was. So we're going to unpack that verse by verse and take a deep dive into the emotional aspect of Saul's life. Now let's go back and look at what God told 
Saul to do. He said, utterly destroy everything. Everything means not one thing left. But look at verses 8 and 9, and it tells us that Saul completed only part of what God asked him to do. He left the king live, and God had commanded him to kill the king, and he kept the best of everything. Well, last week I shared with you an iceberg example. And I want us to revisit that iceberg, and I want us to look at the top of the iceberg. And remember that that reflects the way we conduct ourselves and the changes we make that others see. And so that's at the very top of the iceberg. And then what we see in the next level are those ways that we connect spiritually to God. Those are the things that we do and how we can be in God. There's Bible study, there's prayer, there are reading Christian books, there's fellowshipping with other Christians. But if you'll note in the iceberg, there's still this large portion of the iceberg that is untouched. And the untouched places are our emotionally unhealthy places. Those are the patterns and the habits that we have not changed. They are the places we haven't completely given over to Christ. We have not gone down into our deep roots And these are the places that we either have acknowledged and done nothing about, or we have ignored them and are oblivious to them. So we're going to connect Saul to the example of the iceberg. So let's think of Saul's iceberg. He showed his people, his troops, and Samuel that he had obeyed God by destroying the Amalekites. So that's the top of the iceberg. That's what was there. His works, his actions, his doings, his his thoughts, his words, all of that revealed to the world that I have obeyed God. You heard him say those words, didn't you? I did obey God. And I hope as we're listening, we're also listening to ourselves when we begin to analyze what we have done, where God has asked us to do something and go on a mission of some sort and to do something for him. And we say, you know what, I can't quite get all that, God, but I'll do some of it. And that's what we show to the world. And that's what Saul did. And so the portion of the iceberg is show, that is showing are all those things he did. Another thing that he did was he built a monument. And so we continue to read about the monument he built. And the monument was not to God. The monument was to himself. And so that's showing. And then he he boasted even how he had obeyed God. And so all of that is what is showing to the world. But what we want to do is we want to dig into Saul's iceberg And we want to see what is underneath that iceberg that led Saul to not obey God fully. We want to find out what's going on with Saul that caused him to build a monument. And what's going on that caused him to boast as he did. See, when we begin to examine the whys and the hows and we begin to question why we do the things we do, it causes us to go into our iceberg 
and figure out our motives. And that leads us to where maybe we have a sin that is causing us to do the things we do and say the things we say and feel the things we say. So we get those clues as we read in verses 10 and 11. We see the words and we see the phrases and the depth of Samuel as they are observing what Saul did. He's observing what Saul did. And so that is giving us clues as to what was really going on in Saul's life. And then we see God's feelings about Saul. So we're going to look at these two and see they had emotions. We're going to see what they did with their emotions. So God said, I regret that I have set up Saul to be king because he's turned his back from following me. See, that's God's perspective on Saul's sin. See, God is saying, I set him up to do this one big thing that was going to change the world. It was going to secure the family of God in Israel. And I was very clear in what I told him to do. But the result of his disobedience is clear. He did not follow me. He did not carry out my words. So what we did not read in this occasion is that we did not see God ranting and raving and flailing around. God did not go into a cave of despair and depression and sadness and be unable to respond. He did not ignore it. He did not suppress it, did he? He spoke what he felt, and he had an action to go with it. And then look at what Samuel. Samuel, God's chosen prophet, Samuel felt deeply what Saul did in his disobedience, and it grieved Samuel. It's an example of experiencing grief and loss in a very different way. Grief from somebody who had poured into another person, someone that God had appointed to lead and guide and be the voice of God, to coach Saul through what he was supposed to do. And Saul fell flat, and it grieved Samuel. And so guess what he did? He cried all night long. Now what it doesn't say, he cried all night, and the next day, and the next, and six months later, he surfaced to the earth and went out into the sunshine. He had an appropriate hear me say that, hey, when you have a, a loss, you, got, you, get, you get 24 hours under the covers, bury your head. That's not what this is. This is an example of an amount of time that it took for him to really understand what had happened. God regretted what he did for Saul. God did not say he made a mistake. He just regretted that he set up Saul as king. See, that's an emotional response. And Samuel now is filled with grief, and he shows his sorrows with tears. They both show emotion. And we remember that it's good to show emotions. We want to show them, and we want to use them to inform us, and then we want to express them in helpful ways. Now, I'll unpack those things again. 
We want to show our emotions. And then we want to use them to inform us of what is going on. And then we want to express them in helpful ways. So Samuel showed his sadness. And God showed his disappointment. But nowhere do we read that it went into shame and blame and criticism as we often express when we are disappointed. Samuel didn't continue to live in his grief, and God did not continue to berate and belittle Saul. Now, let's contrast that with Saul's response in verses 12 and 13. Then Saul, unaware of the reaction of God in Samuel, let his ego drive his next steps. Notice throughout how unaware Saul is. This is a real key to, to understand that there are people walking about emotional wrecks who live unaware, oblivious to the chaos and the wake they leave behind. It's because they've never taken that opportunity to examine what they just did or what they're getting ready to do. And so this is Saul, unaware. So he, he, he didn't check in with God. See, he never examined, he never paused to say, hmm, now what did he say, Mr. Secretary of the Israel Army? What, did you write that down for me so I can just make sure I got it all right? Remember, this choleric Saul is living in some real strong weaknesses, isn't he? He doesn't check in. He builds a monument in his own honor and falsely boasts of his obedience to God. He thinks he carried out God's command. See, doesn't that scare you a little bit that you, you think you've done something? But we think we've done things because we haven't checked to verify and confirm and really dig in with God and say, I, I really need some clarity here. And, and I want to make sure. And what are the signs and indicators? Oh, it will be some real peace I have. And, and oh, you want me to go and check in with somebody else who's really spiritually mature and just confirm it? Oh, and you want me to look at scripture to see if there's anything here that would be wrong? Uh, oh, and you want to see if it fits in with my personality and my skill set? And my talents and my abilities? Oh, I didn't get that part. You see, that's how we know we're walking in the way of the Lord. By checking in how he created us and asking him for wisdom and for the people who can help us get some clarity. Saul was oblivious to all of that. Deep in his iceberg, he thinks so highly of himself that he built a monument for himself. Saul was hiding his motives in the iceberg. We discover what drives our words. Now here's a key point. Saul was not self-aware, so he didn't examine himself. He didn't ask questions. A, a basic one is what I'm doing lining up with God's will. He never said, did I do the next right thing? Am I fully completing the task? And so what we want to do is whenever we are about to say something, 
think something, feel something, do something, we want to measure our words and our actions according to God's plumb line. Now you'll see here, this is a plumb line. It's a weight that's hanging by a cord. And so gravity ensures that it hangs perfectly straight so that a structure is using construction, so that structure is lined up correctly. Now that shows the plumb line is pointing directly to God's word. That's what we want to measure, what we do and what we say. Does it line up with God's will, God's way, God's word? Now, today, uh, we use something a little bit different. We use a level when we're hanging pictures or, um, listen, if you're a melancholy, that's what you use. You know, my, that's the way my husband wants to do it. And I say, just get it close. It doesn't matter. Here, put the nail in. The picture looks pretty good to me. That's the difference in personalities, isn't it? Okay, we just recently painted the entire house, and guess what hasn't been done yet? Pictures on the wall. <laughs> hey, if any of you, a professional wall, a picture hanger, please see me. We'll pay you. Okay, there we go. That little aside. Uh, so, but we use, this is a level. We want to measure what we do according to God's word. Otherwise, we're going to be lopsided. Scripture speaks of plumb, plumb lines as a way to measure how close what we do aligns with God's vision for our lives. His, I, I love thinking of using the plumb line, the level, as that way. What's God's vision for me? Because that, see, that leaves a lot of, of opening for what we do and how we live in the world. It, it doesn't mean that I have to get in my car a certain way and go a certain way to a certain, it's not so prescriptive. But where it is, it, there is no wiggle room is with his moral laws, the moral laws in Scripture. But his vision for us is to walk in his will, to walk in his way, to live a deeply close life with him. So God's word is our plumb line. It's a reference point. It's our standard for everything we think, feel, say, and do. When we refer to it constantly, his plumb line helps us to grow up and to remain spiritually healthy. It's a reference point to keep us stable instead of falling victim to the whims of life and to the culture that keeps stuck. Where is our culture today? I'll show you an image. It's kind of like the way Saul lived. It's going to be a plumb line that is crooked. Isn't that the way the culture is asking us to live? Maybe other people in your life are asking you to live that way. There are people that are wanting to pull us away from being plumb, from living according to the standard. Saul was living unaware of the plumb. He didn't check the standard. Saul didn't press pause before he acted. He didn't think twice about not killing Agog. He didn't examine his motives. He didn't question building the monument. Here's what he did do that drew him crooked. 
He let the fear of his troops pull him away from God's plan. His inability to examine his next steps pulled him away from God's plan. Saul was influenced by his culture, and he acted according to the whims of his emotions and what others expected him to do. I'm going to say that again. Saul was influenced by his culture, and he acted according to the whims of his emotions and what others expected him to do. Those three things pulled Saul away from God's vision for Saul's life. God had set Saul apart. Here's, here's also another truth. This wasn't the first time. We're way into Saul's life when this occurred. This was a pattern. It was a habit that Saul had developed. So Saul's unawareness leads him to go through the motions of religious activity as enough for him. See, Saul was okay with, with living only 30% deep in the iceberg without going deeper by self-reflecting and correcting. Self-reflecting and correcting. His offering of sacrifices at that time would have been something like this. Well, yes, I go to church, but, you know, developing that close relationship and spending a lot of time with God, that's just really not anything I have time for. Or, yeah, I know I really do need to do that, but I go to church. Or... I read devotions, but when I'm responding to my family and the people in my life, I'm really not checking in with that plumb line. See, not only was he unaware of what was going on inside, Saul did not cultivate a contemplative life with God. And that's what happens to us if we don't go more than 30% below the iceberg, to dig into our life to see, oh, there's a root there for this pattern of behavior that I have that's causing me to build monuments to myself, that's causing me to have some idols in my life, and I'm totally unaware because I haven't dug into the iceberg of my life to figure out who I am in the underneath so that I can bring it up by living there with God in a contemplative life. That's why his plumb line was crooked. His doing for God did not flow from his being with God. And our doing for Christ needs to flow from being with him. Or being helps us to think, our being with God helps us to think and feel and say and do according to God's standards. So let's start asking ourselves questions. What are the challenges that are keeping me from slowing down to have a life deep 
with God? Am I just distracted? Is it the news? Is it busyness? What is it that is keeping me from having this deep contemplative life? So there, I've given you a diagram and look to see that it is out of balance. It shows this, the contemplative life is this. Being with God is receiving less attention than the activity in life. Doing is more active than being. So you don't need to do it now. You can do this in the privacy of your own home, on your own back porch where I go, because we don't want to draw the circles for the group to see in case there's a judgmental sister at your table whose, whose contemplative circle is really big and yours is really small. So, so in your mind you can do this then. Draw two circles that reflect your own doing and how that balances with your being. Is it possible that they could be equal sized circles? What would that mean? It would mean that every moment of every day I'm checking in. I'm checking in. I'm spending time throughout the day, all throughout the day. God, you know, I, I love you and I want to represent you and I'm going into this, this situation and I'm not sure how it's supposed to look and, and I'm a little uncomfortable, but I, know I want you to guide me and I want you to help me to snap my mouth shut if I'm not supposed to say this, this and that. And, and, then, and you're spending time in the scripture and the word different times during the day and you're hearing some beautiful music and praising God and you're and you are get this stopping to listen you know they say that the time that people begin to feel uncomfortable in silence is 15 seconds and when I read that I timed it to see how it was and so I thought oh yeah that's probably very true but are we spending the time in silence to hear God? That's part of a contemplative life. We're going to look at that as we go through this series. So Samuel, now we get to the point where God's spiritual advisor to Saul, his life coach, points out what's underneath the iceberg. He points out to Saul that he's not checking in with the plumb line. Listen to what he says in verse 22. It sounds something like this. Do you think all God wants are sacrifices, empty rituals just for show? He wants you to listen to him. Plain listening is the thing. Not staging a lavish. See, he says you need to be listening to God. You need to have a contemplative life with God. It's missing. Samuel calls him out on what's missing in his life because he hasn't checked in his iceberg. And then he gets to the core of what is deep underneath the iceberg, the place that we never fully acknowledge and give to God. This is where we find our sins and our deep-seated issues. It's where we find the why of what we do. And here it is, this is the moment in the lesson where we are going to hear what the deep-seated sin deep in the iceberg is for Saul. Verse 23 says, for rebellion is the sin of witchcraft. And stubbornness 
is as iniquity and idolatry. Wow. Rebellion is compared to witchcraft. Well, I had to really, when I was studying, preparing this, I said, oh, dear, where are we going with this? Witchcraft, and I don't like to read the word. And I was think about it, and I put the, you know, put the symbol of the cross, and you know, block it out. I've read the word. What's happening? And so here, here is the connection. Witchcraft comes from a control, from a compulsion to control other people. Witchcraft comes from a compulsion to control other people and situations. Y'all think about that. It's what rebellion is about, a compulsion to a control. Saul rebelled against God's word. The words he had received from God about fully destroying the Amalekites, their leader, their people, and their possessions. But Saul wanted to control the situation. He wanted to do what he thought best. That's rebellion comparable to witchcraft. Do you know what the punishment for that was? That's rebellion. We rebel when we don't follow God's ways. There's a lot of rebellion going on, isn't there? <laughs> I'm guilty too. It's rebellion. Samuel also said he was stubborn, and that's equal to sin and idolatry. See, Saul elevated himself and his desires so that he was not obedient to God. And so this was an idol for him. It's idolatry. Idols are anything we put before God. And when we put anything before God, it is blocking our lives to God. An idol is a block. And when we operate in stubbornness, we protect that idol. We're not open to input. Don't tell me anything. I don't want to hear that. Mm -mm. We're, we're not open to other perspectives. We don't listen. We certainly don't check in with God and check in with a plumb line because we're right. We know we're right. We say we're right, but we're stubborn. See, stubbornness is a deeply em, uh, emotional disaster for our lives. It's a personality weakness. It's a sin. It keeps us from being vulnerable to God. People begin to tiptoe around us when we're stubborn. St stubbornness walls us off. Stubbornness is a really hard place. It's this protective layer that, that keeps us from ever landing softly in a situation. And chronic stubbornness can become a pattern of life. It keeps us from getting help, from listening. God wants us to tear down that idol of stubbornness because when we Get it torn down. We receive his healing love and his truth. So in order to break free from that idol of stubbornness, we have to admit it. We have to admit that what is holding us back is our own stubborn being. It's preventing us to have good, healthy relationships with other people that we may be oblivious to. Because stubborn pride does that to us. The only way to... Breakthrough is to become humble, to be vulnerable, and then to invite input from someone or somewhere that will help us change. And then 
God extends his wonderful grace and mercy and peace. See, there's hope for all of our issues, whether it's stubbornness or anger or rage or, or apathy or whatever it is. It's an idol that's blocking our relationship. Saul's golden idol came from his own selfish desires and his unwillingness to consider God. Well, God had had enough because it wasn't the first time. God's a patient God, but he'd had enough. So Samuel speaks for God, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. There are consequences to our stubborn idols. Saul had listened to the other people, hiding underneath his iceberg of emotions, were those issues that he had never dealt with. There are always consequences to our disobedience for living below the iceberg and not checking in the plumb line, for having idols, for having too much activity and not enough contemplation keeps us emotionally and spiritually immature. It's completely connected to God in a contemplative life and we're checking in and we're examining and we're really trying to, we've grown from the way we used to be and we're becoming, having new life in Christ. But there's always something that we mess up on because we're human. I mean, the only one that would never have anything deep in the iceberg is God and he is not in the room in the flesh today. So we all have these things. So that's take home Work on that. Think about that. And then it, know the importance of understanding our emotional issues and getting them under control so we can be who we need to be. So stubbornness was an issue that Samuel was trying to work on with Saul to help him get out of it so he would listen to God. Are there people in your life who are trying to help you that have given you signals and clues and, or they've said to you, you know, you're kind of an emotional wreck and hey, people don't want to be around you or whatever it is they're saying, those are clues. All right, so now let's get back into the conclusion of the lesson. So for the rest of the series, we're going to look at ways we can make changes. We'll continue to look at emotionally, spiritually healthy ways to live and examples to do this, not just Saul's life. And, and so what I want to do today is to give you a takeaway of a way to get started in, in, a, in a contemplative life that just gets us started in growing deeper in our, in our life so that we're checking in with the plumb line morning, noon, and night at least three times. I'm gonna give you some strategies for beginning our days and with some simple steps and ending our days. Virtually every spiritual, inspirational person in my life that I have ever known or observed and every neuroscientist, y'all know I love to read them, uh, that I know and adhere to, I follow their principles, does this. They begin and end their day well every single one. They begin their day well and end their day well. Both of my parents practiced that. They modeled this. 
my mentor, mentor, Neil Moni did. She taught how to do that. I, I go back to reading um, Zig Ziglar did that. Uh, author Tommy Newberry, another important author in my life that I've read. Dr. Caroline Leaf, Dr. Daniel Amen, the pastor and author Peter Scazzaro. On and on I could go with people who've given this example. And then we read Daniel in the Bible, and he's the one I'll be referring to in a few weeks as, as one who modeled this, of this deep contemplative life that began and ended the day well. I can hear my mother saying, now face the father before you face the day. And I can hear her saying, hem your day in praise. And that's the beginning and the end. So let's begin well with God each day. The first 15 minutes of the day, let's start the day with joy. See, when we tell ourselves we're beginning with joy, it sets our brain in motion to begin to look for that throughout the day. And so now Moni used to say this, set yourself for the day with good thoughts. Dr. Daniel Amen says each morning, every morning he gets up and says, today is going to be a great day. That's before his feet hit the floor, he is sending his brain this message that this will be great and I'm looking forward to what God's going to bring into it. I practice this in different ways throughout the years. Um, I, my prayer for, for many times, I still do it. I, I do other things now and add to it. But help me to be open to the giving and receiving of your blessings and to do all things pleasing in your sight. Lately, I've been reciting Psalm 118, 24. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. It doesn't say unless something happens. See, this is the start of the day. We're telling our brain and subsequently our body and our mind and our emotions that we're starting off well. We're not giving in to dread of the day. We tend to live out what we think on. And so each day I want to focus on the goodness of the day that God has planned for me. Now, there are days that we don't feel like saying that. The point is, where we place our attention determines how we feel. Our subconscious starts looking for evidence to match what we say. We will find good reasons why the day is great. We'll look for them. We'll focus on the good. So that's the first of the day. And then move into that quiet time with God. For, for most days, for me, it's on the back porch where I find the quiet. And I see beautiful um, aspects of nature, and I hear the sounds of nature, and I read and I study. And the 15 minutes sometimes when it, it can goes to 30 and, and an hour, and sometimes longer than that, an hour and a half. I've known to be there three hours. Now, that's not every day by any stretch. I wouldn't get other things done, but it's what we can do when we want to do it and when we see the impact it has on our lives. And then we want to end well with God. The final 15 minutes of the day, we want to seal the day with joy. Dr. Amen suggests we go to bed at night and focus on the good we've done and seen. We focus on gratitude 
for what happened during the day. And so he suggests we ask, well, what went well today? And that's what we think about. It's good to go to, to bed reviewing the good parts of the day. We have a practice in our family. I started it with my, my kids, and it's going on with the grandkids. Their parents do it with them. I do it with them, and we're always asking, what went well today? What was the best thing about your day? And, then, and we do then go with what, what didn't go well, what didn't work with the plan, what was, what was kind of upsetting, and, and how did you feel about that? It's an analysis where teaching the kids to think and express their emotions and then learn to deal with it. It happened just yesterday when my grandson got off the bus and into my car and he said, you will not believe what Isaac did just now on the bus. <laughs> and then he proceeded to tell me and, and we talked about it and how it wasn't a good thing. And I said, well, what do you think you need to do about that? I need to tell everybody in the class what Isaac did because they don't want to be around Isaac. Hold on a minute. And see, because I asked him to express, then I was able to say, let's talk about this. Let's say you go to school tomorrow and you, you get Jonathan and you say, you will not believe what I, and then you pull Sabrina over and you tell her this. And you, I said, then what's everybody in the class? They're not going to like Isaac. I said, Exactly. Do you want to be responsible for that? Because let's say it was you. Let's say it was Eli. That somebody in a bad moment of time was caught doing something he shouldn't be doing. And everybody goes to school and says, you don't want to be around that Elijah. How would you feel? You see how that sounds and works? Because we had the conversation. We asked, we analyzed, we reflected, and we came to the decision. And he said, I'm not saying a word. You see, that's what we all need to be doing with our days. Our subconscious is receptive to suggestive influences in the moments before we sleep. What gets impressed in our heart gets expressed in our circumstances. So we want to surrender that subconscious to God instead of the TV and the news and the argument and all the emotional upsets of the day. We want to give God the bad choices we made and ask him to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We want to thank him for the whole day, for all the good things that happened and what we've learned from the bad. I love reviewing my day with God. There are things that bring a smile to my face and fill me with joy, and that's how I want to end my day. And then I want to tell him I'm looking forward to what he has in store for me tomorrow. I can't wait to see the joy that you have set before me tomorrow. Living with anticipation instead of dread is a way to send God-filled, positive, proactive messages to your body your thoughts, and your emotions. I hope you'll join me in both of those, starting well and ending well. Father, thank you that you set before us choices to live in your love and your wisdom and your guidance or to choose poorly. Help us to examine everything we do and say and, and examine it against the, the plumb line you have set for us for our vision. Thank you so much for the examples we've read and what we can learn from them. Guide us in our every thought and word and deed. Help us to place them before you 
and to walk well in your word and your way. In Jesus' name, we all say together, amen.